Scotch. I bet you didn't know that. And my name is Michael Lilienthal, and this is Ethan Bartlett. Hi, I'm Ethan Bartlett, and I'm trying to lean into sort of the smooth-talking, borderline ASMR thing Michael has decided to do. <laughs> I don't know if No, I've we've succeeded. done borderline ASMR in previous episodes. This is, this is, this is not that. I'm just... You were just doing like a very smooth just... thing, and I just yeah. wanted to emulate it. Oh, thank you. I I, I wish that. this were a segue into talking about the book somehow, but it's not. It's just me, like queuing off of you. Well, we can't we can't talk about the book yet because we've got other steps to to do here. That's we're true. a very organized and orderly podcast. Yeah, we are we a very strict we... podcast, as it says on the Patreon. S- yes <laughs> yes we are a very strict podcast uh so in 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 the consideration of sticking to the script and doing what we're supposed to do in order ethan okay um you've now entered into now like a very anime boy energy and a, like i liked the asmr thing better <laughs> okay well we'll come back to that yeah thank you <laughs> I'm getting tingles now, so good. It's Please continue. All right, I will. Well, we're going to be drinking scotch and talking about books. That's what we do on this podcast. We drink scotch and talk about books. And the scotch that we're drinking for this episode is the Glenlivet Nadra. I am drinking the Oloroso matured version of Nadra. Ethan, what are you drinking? Um, I'm drinking almost the same thing, but mine is matured in first fill American white oak casks. Mm-hmm. But I believe both of ours, as mine says, were bottled at cask. Wow, cask strength. Yep. Michael, just out of curiosity, what is the alcohol by volume percentage on yours? Ooh, okay, so mine is 59.1%. Oh! So however this treats us, I'm going to be 1.1% less drunk than you. (laughs) 1.1% less. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Which is the last time I can make that joke until I uh, call my wife... uh... Oh, I forget her name. Anyway, I call my wife in... Her name's just, Karen. You know, that was a joke. I, whatever. <laughs> anyway, Karen. See, I was just going to tell you to, to use like a, a funny internet name for her. Like, yeah, well, you know, I've just, been calling just her. Call, just call a Karen in here. Yeah, I was going to say I've been calling her Karen this whole time because that's not her name. Uh, <laughs> that's just been a code name because like anyone who like comes into the room in the middle of our drinking session and imposes rules on us, like what else would she be called? That's like, Karen. Oh, hi, dear. Uh, why are you glaring me like that? Uh, can you read the rules? Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. 
Rule 4. Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Okay, thanks. (laughs) Okay, she's gone. I'm definitely sleeping on the couch tonight. (laughs) Well... (laughs) You'll have some Nadra for company. <laughs> Skunk. Slancha. Well, Ethan. Well, Michael. We're continuing to discuss The Sheriff of Babylon by Tom King. Art by Mitch Jarrods. And I want to talk about something. Yikes. Uh, we, we were mentioning at the end of last episode uh, the concept of things that only the medium of graphic novels slash comic book can do. Yes. Um, and I want you to... Take a stab at what I want to talk about. (laughs) I want you to tell me what I want to talk about. And I want you to interrogate me in that sphere. Uh, well, yikes. I'm flipping the script on you. Uh, I'm putting myself... <laughs> in the hot seat and making you the interrogator. Cause like I have some thoughts. This isn't psychological torture. I have some thoughts about that. <laughs> I none of them were like framed as questions for you in my okay. mind. Well, um, that's okay. I I'll take control whenever I want to. Also, just so you know. Okay, sure, but like. Uh, the bomb I've planted under your seat might have a different uh, take on that. Um, but see, when you were in the other room, I switched chairs. Oh no. It doesn't make any sense, but it's so scary. Uh, <laughs> right. So, Michael, I guess I'll put it this way, since you've forced me, uh, as one does, into the Socratic method... Um, when someone is in the uh, hot seat, so to speak, they can force the other person into whatever they want to do. How? It's a power play. Would you say? Inverted the paradigm. And like, get really down to the basics here. Like, don't don't okay. float on the surface. How would you say, given a novel, like a straight up novel mm. with like 
text, and nothing else. Mm-hmm. How would you say that that is different from a film? Oh boy. <laughs> um, well, and this is something when we we think about the the genre of comic book graphic novel also. Uh, and I don't. Okay, you're getting ahead of my interrogation here. Also. Um, no, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, I, I think there's something similar in terms of uh, graphic novel and film that yes. a novel can't do exactly the same way. Okay, again, you're um, getting ahead of me here, but like, don't worry. I okay. mean, I'll just I'll just torture you later. Like, it's fine. All right. If you if you get too far ahead of like reading my mind and doing exactly what I want you oh, to okay. do, but yeah, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Well, I, I think, and a novel can do this too, to an extent, and in a different way. Uh, but there, there's something about. I can't think of a better term for it, and it's an inaccurate term, an inaccurate term. Um, I can't think of a better way to put it than forced perspective. Okay. Um. And in a a graphic novel uh you are forced into certain pictures for certain images that you know you can describe in a novel but you don't see them exactly the same way um no two readers will necessarily see them in exactly the same way in a in a novel versus a graphic novel um and even there there's like baggage with heavy air quotes that a, a reader can bring to it as well um whatever you see but thinking about the the page in the panel that we were looking at last time it's page 225 there uh mentioning that middle panel mm-hmm. um uh with the the portrait depicted there like a uh, a novel could not do exactly that except to say something like the portrait watched them judgmentally or something. Sure. The the portrait of Avicenna looked down, you know, um, anthropomorphizing the the portrait in a, in a way, which says more and less than what the graphic novel is doing. Sure. Um, uh, since you've put me in this hot seat, did you have more about, about that? And that's not about film either. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe a better, way or a better example even uh if you go to page 34 slash 35 um this is the splash page uh of part two so we've had just the initial initial page as serves as sort mm-hmm. of a prologue this is like page two slash three of the original issue presumably um Mm-hmm. Often called a splash page because often you open a an issue of a graphic novel. One of the first few pages is like a big, often two page or one full page like kind of image. Um, Usually has the title of the issue or the chapter or whatever. Yes, uh, which this one does. Uh, the title being the things mm-hmm. they left behind, which is a title I want to touch back on later at some point. Okay, certainly. So this is a, a page, it is a two-page spread. Um, the main sort of visual of it is uh, Christopher walking along a, um, let's see, I think the, the text even says, 
it's in the green zone, the American-controlled green zone, but he's walking along an area where there's a lot of stuff for sale, uh, I think it's fair to say, and he's being called out to by a couple of uh, Iraqi uh, um, salesmen, I guess, for lack of a better word. But inset into this two-page spread is, slash, I guess, are a bunch of miniature panels showcasing the various things that are for sale. Um, and there's some dialogue. Most of it is, in fact, all of it, I guess, is a various um, a sort of a, a canards or tropes, I guess, that uh, these salesmen are deploying. Sir, good price is very good. Sir, this is very unique. Uh, here, thanks, America yep. Freedom. Um, it's these sort of things that make up all the dialogue on the page. Okay. How would a novel mm -hmm. render this scene? Uh, not the, not the same way by any means. Um, it would, uh, maybe include some of these, I, I, I could see depending on the novelist, it, it coming about in different ways. Yeah. Um, it might come about in terms of like an internal monologue that Christopher is having as he's walking along. It might include like a description of the whole scene with, um, in either of those cases, an interruption of, of the, these, um, sellers calling out their their wares and stuff i could see that like here's a paragraph of uh, of text describing the the market and then here's a, a one-line paragraph of dialogue from someone yeah. saying sir good price is very good and then it continues with more description that would be um, like it would, it would come across in a more um I, I think the major difference would be in a novel it would be forced into a more linear yes um sort of uh depiction whereas in this you, what order do you read any of this in? What order do you look at any of this in? Uh, it's not clear. You look at all of it. You take it in all at once, and then you pick it apart. Yeah. And you, you look at each thing in whatever order. And it that communicates some of the same chaos. Um, it almost communicates uh, of all it of better this in and my... the bombardment. Yeah, better uh, in, in at least a very different way than a novel yeah. could. Um, um, also, like be a lot harder to do that in a novel. <laughs> the, the way that you've conceptualized it in a novelistic passage is like the closest to this rendering in the sense of like single line of dialogue, longer paragraph, single line of dialogue, longer paragraph. That's how you would do right the closest thing to this sense in a novel. Um, you've gotten ahead of me a little bit in the sense of like my next question was going to be how would you do this in a film. Mm, okay. Um, in a film, uh, I think you could do it a couple different ways. If you had just a, um, well, it depends on what you what you want to uh, bring out, I guess, um, and who's directing. Um, but I could see like more or less a single still camera capturing essentially the same thing, watching Christopher walk from farther away until he gets a lot closer than this. Um, if it were Kubrick, maybe, <laughs> you know, just uh, spend several minutes just still right here while Christopher walks from way outside of your perception until he's very clear in the frame. And all the while you just hear all of this, um, uh, all of the, the, the 
sellers calling out right. and maybe it would get louder as he gets closer you know as you as you hear him or alternatively um in what i think is a, a lot more uh in line with what you would see see in 21st century films uh is maybe a camera a shaky cam over the shoulder of christopher walking along with him and just hearing all of this bombardment yeah. Uh, of people talking to um, my, um that's that's more or less the two main ways i could see it happening there's a lot in between yeah my only other thought happen. and i think your thoughts are both very good um because with the kubrick idea that i think you're right is as likely as not how kubrick would film it um what you lose is a lot of these close-ups of mm-hmm. these inset panels of saddam is gone yeah. these saddam watches these various currencies, um, some of the George Bush Yeah, and those Bush have to come in, in cuts, um, too. So that's the thing, though. Like, Kubrick would just want to do one long shot. So you'd lose yep. those. You'd maybe have them right. in in incidental ways or whatever. Um, and then, right, they'd be there, but you'd have to be looking for yeah, them. Yeah, the tw- the, what you call the 21st century version, which I think is as accurate and as I anything. I don't know how better to label it. I mean, <laughs> I, I think that's as accurate as anything. Um, you're right, you'd have like a shaky cam, you'd have a follow thing, and you'd get some of those details, uh, but you wouldn't yeah. have the immediacy. You'd have to pan away from Christopher and uh, pan back to him. The only other way I right. could envision doing it is with a series of like what are sometimes called jump cuts, which is not a great like accuracy wise mm. is not a great way to describe it. But like you'd have Christopher walking, you'd cut to a real close up of some of the memorabilia, you'd cut back to him, right. you'd have the men's dialogue over it. So like there's ways to do this in a novel and in a film. But my point is that like this exact way of doing it feels exclusive to graphic novels. Like you couldn't do this same thing, this exact way. I don't think in Mm -hmm. any other medium. Uh, No. And I think there's, there's in, in both film and novel, there's a a delineation that you are required to mm -hmm. follow that you aren't in a graphic Mm -hmm. novel. Um, because it is um, a lot closer to the medium of art, uh, is in a visual art, not um, a film art or because it's closer, but it's not quite the same. Because there is an element. It's not the same. No. Of a script to it or of writing to it, which is like why, for example, there is in many cases an order that you follow, uh, a narrative that you follow. Right, but like. Um, in a graphic novel, in a way that you don't in visual art, you have like a writer, like a a genius right. in the Renaissance sense of the the word, sort of <laughs> guiding the storyline in the way that you don't necessarily need to have in classic slash classical visual art. Um, mm-hmm. It's as if uh, it's as if you took a series of paintings, but you lined them up. Uh, in a way right. that like a writer would do rather than an artist, which is itself so, sort of an artificial distinction. But there, there's there's a way to read comic books and graphic novels and things um, on your phone uh, with like a, a 
Kindle app or, or things uh, like yeah. that. I I wonder if this is on Kindle. Um, probably it is. And I wonder with this page specifically how it's done. Because there's like a guided reading version. Like you can just, you can read on the Kindle app um, uh, or uh, I think Marvel Comics uh, has their own app for their comics that does the same thing that uh, you can read it by just looking at the page and you can zoom in where you want, or you can do the guided reading version. I think that's what it's called uh, where it selects a specific panel in a page and zooms in on that. And then you tap over to the next panel and it goes that I wonder what it would do with this page. My suspicion is it would start when you get to this page, you see the full two page spread zoomed out. And then you tap on it for the next bit, and it would zoom in up to the caption up at the top left, uh, Al-Rashid, the American-controlled green zone, etc., etc. And then it would zoom over to some dialogue, zoom over to another piece of dialogue, zoom over to another piece of dialogue, then zoom over to the the title. Um, um, Without necessarily looking at the individual panels within this page, I think it wouldn't know what to do with those individual panels of all these specific merchandise pieces, uh, which is a failing. I think it, it misses something about that because you're meant to look at each of those individually. Um, there are things that are, are called yeah. out. The The artist wants you to see them. Um, for sure. It, beca- uh, the alternative would be, it would have to pick an order for those and any order it picks necessarily excludes any other order. And that's missing something that the graphic novel itself is. Presenting. Well, especially if it's not like, because you need this whole two-page spread. So if there's no way to yep. represent this whole two-page spread, you know, I could see it after that going into specific dialogue or spe- like the inset panels or something. But if at no point you get this whole two-page spread, I feel like you are missing something. Right. Uh, yeah. So, uh... Part of the thrust of the uh, Socratic questioning that you have forced me to do, Michael, um, <laughs> has to do with the only times I have encountered the study of graphic novels in a specifically academic setting, um, which one of my teachers in grad school who taught a lot of film courses, she taught my uh, film criticism uh course film theory and criticism um she was very interested in graphic novels as a medium and her assertion about them was that you could use the same set of tools to analyze a graphic novel that you could to analyze a film now Mm -hmm. to be fair to her and to not like cast aspersions too quickly on that idea a lot of what she was talking about um, has to do with perspective and framing. Um, the idea, sure. even if you turn to like the next page from the one that we were, the ones we were just discussing, page yeah. thirty-six, um, which is where Christopher and uh, Nasir meet in a in a restaurant in the Green Zone. Um, you know, uh, you have, so on 36, you have four 
sort of long panels, like a, a mm-hmm. rectangular panels longer horizontally. On 37, you have um, panels that are longer uh, vertically, but... Which, uh, that, that like, nine-panel thing that you've got on 37, and we've mar- remarked uh, another in other yeah. places... Um, I, I, I don't know for sure if it's it was like the standard, but you saw that a lot more commonly in older comic yeah. books. Yeah, and there are um, some... Like, that's that's the thing. You have the yeah. nine uh, <laughs> spread. And I want to say uh, that recalls to me specifically... Um, uh, what's the one with old Batman in the like late 80s, early 90s? Was it The Dark Knight Returns? Um, Dark Knight Returns. So I want to say Frank Miller. Yeah, Frank Miller. Uh, there are some page layouts in that book that were like twelve panels, so it was like similar to the nine sure. panels, but yep. it was like even smaller, and had some yep. similar things um, to like page thirty-eight, for example, where uh, you have your top three panels that function roughly like different cuts in a film. But then your middle three panels are almost more like you didn't you almost don't need the borders around those three panels. They could be just right. one panel. And like again, I, I know Dark Knight Returns is like one of the most basic, like if you're gonna read five graphic novels from before the turn of the twenty first <laughs> century, like Dark Knight Returns is number two. That's in there, yeah. It's like yep. Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, right. and then the Sandman series. Um Right. But the point is, like, you almost don't need the breakers in there. You would just, that middle what? set of three panels could just be one panel. And what? that feels like a very old, a much older um, uh, yeah. rendering or, or something. I, what what does that do though? When it, like it, this isn't the first time it does that, and it's not the last time it does that in this in this uh, rendition. And it's not unique to this graphic yeah. novel either. But what does that? I do? would love your answer to that because I've wondered about that since I read The Dark Knight Returns like ten years ago. What what I think it does is it forces you to look at it multiple mm. ways. Um. You, you are forced to look at the entirety of it, and then you're forced to look at each individual as panel. As a series of actions. Um, which, like uh, discrete yes, actions. Yes, as a series. And you can almost... you If, if you do translate this into film, right? Like, this is almost uh, like a panning. Right? right. You're panning from the left to the right. As, you, as the camera is looking over here, it sees Nasir's gun uh, during this, this conversation, and then it sees Nasir's face with Christopher coming into more focus, and then it moves over beyond Christopher um, as the camera moves along there. Uh, but at the same time, it is just one shot. Yeah. So it, 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 this, this is another thing that a graphic novel can do that a film can't. Uh, it can communicate stillness and movement at the same time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um. Which is, like, um, a really, like, that's maybe the heart of everything I've been trying to Socratic method you about since you forced me to Socratic mm. method you that I didn't want to do, but yes. now you've forced me to. Um, is that idea in a graphic novel that you can have stillness and movement simultaneously, where almost in a novel, I feel like you can only have stillness and convey the impression of movement. Whereas in a film, 
you can mm. only have movement and convey the impression of stillness. In a sense, it feels like a graphic novel I can like do yeah. both things, or at least give yep. the impression of both things simultaneously. Right. I like that right. because like, it almost feels like, even even then, even if, with what you've said, like, it almost feels like you could do the same thing with a united middle panel, but like, not quite. Mm-hmm. Not quite, no. Especially with like it, it by putting those borders in there, it's it's saying yeah. something. And and it is a it is a contract too with the the reader sure. in a way that like as a reader with a graphic novel, you're going to get out of it what right. you want to. Um, you could simply read this as though it were one solid right. panel and just move on. But you could also notice what the artist is doing, notice what the writer is doing and pause and read it again. Well, and that's the same thing with film criticism, for example. Like you can, yeah. you know, in any film, you can just say, "Oh, you can do that same mm-hmm. thing, but if you stop to notice sure. how the shot setups are and you know, mm-hmm. what's going on with the visual language, you get another level of things out of it. Which is sort of the thing that I started to talk about with 36 and 37, is like, all of the yeah. sh- the setups uh, are very filmic on these two pages, especially 36, because it like mirrors much more sort of the, the uh, widescreen approach to film that has been popular for the last 50 years, really. Um, and in the, in that approach, like who is where in a visual setup is very important. So in the top panel of 36, like it's almost like no one is privileged. Like Nasser is, is (laughs) sort of down left. Like he's retiring. Uh, but like Christopher and the, the, the waiter or the, the mater D or whatever, like, they're kind of drowned out by their surroundings and like the place your mm-hmm. eye goes is to the upper right which is just to like a an empty set of tables and like an empty wall and stuff empty chairs and empty yeah. tables yeah uh not to bring Les Miserables into this thank you <laughs> but then like the last three panels um Nasir's head is in the upper left Christopher's head is in the upper right and all three of them and that like roughly paints them as equals like those are the two places your eyes are gonna go and that's very filmic um and then in 37 like you get these alternating panels between nasser chris nasser chris nasser chris and then like the guns even and then chris and the last one like it's like a series of so 36 is like a series of medium shots uh 37 is like a series of close shots um neither of which mm-hmm. are like inherently bad or or anything but like uh they they convey a certain element um and again the the ways that I've talked about and that you and I could analyze these two pages very filmic whereas like uh again the previous page uh 34 35 even like 38 and 39 um 
39 starts this like sequence of intercuts uh, that continue mm -hmm. sort of throughout the rest of the uh, uh, episode, the volume, the part, I guess is parts is the way that this uh, book yeah. delineates it. Yeah, know. like um, much is, it's like yeah, in in some ways it's filmic, but in some ways it's not. And I think you have to be careful uh, delineating either of the either of these, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. Something that um, is is occurring to me with this, and there, there's another thing that I noticed that I want to come back to just a little bit briefly. Um, so, something that a, a graphic novel can do that a, a novel can't is communicate without sure. words yeah um that a film and, also can do but a novel can't right exactly yes um but something else that's related to that too is that a graphic novel can communicate in complete and utter st silence and stillness in a way that a a film can't really May like maybe it could but in um, a completely dialogue-free, but imagistic, right. imagistic way, that no, I, I, I think, yep. uh, I think you're right. Like, can do that in a way a film and a novel can't, because a novel has to use words, and a film has right. to use motion and or uh, uh, sound in some way. Right, um, but I'm I'm noticing now as I'm looking through. The, I don't know if there's a single page, or if there's a single panel that's silent, that has no words. No, okay, there are a couple panels. Uh, page one seventy four. There are a few panels there that have um, no dialogue um, or or uh, narrative labels there's a technical term for that that i don't know so there are there are some panels but there's dialogue i think on every page there's there there are words on every page um which is fine um it is i just it, it's something that when when a graphic novel has no words on a page it's something you take yeah of. Um, um and to me i don't know if uh this one is a good example or has a good example of it, but like I take note of that in the sense that like, especially if there's like what a film would call an auteur behind a graphic novel, where it's like one person doing yeah. uh, art and dialogue, like scripting and art. Mm -hmm. um, if you have like a lot of silent uh pages or even panels or whatever to me that often conveys someone mm -hmm. who is more interested in or more skilled at art more skilled at the visuals mm -hmm. or more interested in the visuals than someone who is more interested in like traditional like novelistic or filmic or other uh uh sort of dialogue based medium media Right. 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 Um, I, I don't know if there's there's any bearing necessarily on this 
beyond yeah. that. But something I noticed that uh, I, it might be an error. It might be, I don't know, page 37 when you're looking at that, uh, the 7th uh, and 8th panels are when Christopher is handling mm-hmm. the gun. Um, the... Uh, I think it's I think it's the seventh panel that's in error actually, uh, based on the sixth panel because in the sixth panel you see his right arm is behind him, in the seventh panel you see his oh, left yeah. arm is drawing a gun, in the eighth panel his right hand is putting the gun <laughs> down, and if you look at the the things on his wrists, uh, so the gun is changing hands there, and I'm wondering, um, how the art process went with this. I am. My my guess at this point is that in the seventh panel, it was drawn the opposite way, but then to correct it to make him continuing to look left, it just flipped. Yeah, maybe. Unless in the seventh panel, like, that left arm is swinging forward in the process of swinging back. But, like, that's a very weak argument considering in that p- same panel. Yeah. It feels, it, it really seems like his right arm is, like, in a position of drawing drawing that weapon. Well, yeah, if you think about that in the seventh panel where it, it shows the gun coming out of the holster, uh, if it were his right hand, it would match exactly. It would be exactly right because right. that's his right hand yeah, pulling yeah. out the gun. But to look at it that way, you would have to look at it from the opposite side. From where he right. currently is. And so, but to keep him looking the same way in our perspective and keep him drawing the gun, you have to look at it from the other side, but then right. invert it. So, I, like, that that's just an interesting thing that's maybe a limitation in the graphic novel format. Um, that, like... You have to... I, I don't know if the same stricture would be there in a film. Like, if we wanted to see the gun coming out, we could do that in a number of ways. We could either cut down to see the gun, or we would just see straight from panel six to panel eight. Yeah. We wouldn't necessarily see him. I mean, you gun. still have errors um, in film that have to do with, like, how sure. scene setups work, and, like, you know, you have these bloopers where you have things like that, but. Um, yeah. yeah, it's an interesting thing to point out, for sure. I do want to spend a little more time talking about the art uh, here a bit. Um, I mentioned uh, what Josh Wershke had to say about Tom King yeah. last time. Um, he also mentions uh, Mitch Jared saying he's a fantastic artist. He almost never has clean lines. It's always grimy and chaotic. <laughs> Love it, he says. Um, so I, I think, you know, that's true. It, it, it communicates some of the realism, especially yeah. in this book, um, to have it grimy and chaotic. But it's not just pure chaos he has some nuance in here one of my favorite things that he does and it's really striking um and i think it's just uh tom king leaning into mitch jared's and there's there's a lot of trust between author and artist here um that like i'm gonna write this and i know you can convey this very difficult thing in a way that's not going to be boring in a way that's going to uh communicate exactly what we need and that's uh the four pages from page 188 to 191. And if you just look at those pages just at a glance without 
reading anything or looking too closely, it has the potential to be some of four of the most yeah. boring pages in comic book <laughs> history because each page of those four pages has nine panels and every single one of those panels has the same subject and that's Sophia uh, talking on the phone. So Sophia is talking on the phone for 36 identical right. panels. That's right. boring. But what Mitch Jarrods does is he he moves her slightly throughout all of this. Um, the the dialogue is, it maneuvers around her uh, in different ways while she's talking on the phone. Uh, I, I think almost I think all of it does have uh, the person on the other uh, line on the left side, top left side. More or less, um, yeah. More or less. So, I mean, there, there's some consistency there. Um, but then, like, to coordinate with the, the, the dialogue, you see her moving just ever so slightly uh, and, and communicating different facial expressions, uh, but we, all in generally the same position. It's just upright. It's just her, her profile. Um, or or um, it's just um, her face, uh, chest up. Um, you see her talking. Um, both her arms are, are in the frame almost consistently. The phone is there, uh, and her head is just moving. It reminded me of a story I heard. Um, this was a... Oh, who was it? Was it a director or a critic? A theater... Someone in theater talking about an actress um, that... Uh, oh, it was a critic. Um, I forget his name, but he and I forget the actress he was talking about, but he was interviewing an actress... Um, and in the middle of the interview, she just said, do you want to know how to read a letter in the round? Um, and so like in, in, in a, a round theater with audience on all sides, she was trying to display what it would look like if your direction was to read a letter. And he described what she did and how she moved and how she was like reading a line at a time and just kind of turning in her chair so that she got everyone in the audience uh, involved. Every single person in the audience could see her face as she was reading this letter and to take this really what could be a, a, an immensely boring moment in a play and turn it into something really interesting for the people to see. Uh, and that's what that this reminded me of. Um, that this mm -hmm. could be really boring. And the emphasis is certainly on the phone conversation. That's what you want to communicate. And that's the same thing that you would want to communicate in the play with the letter is just, you want to get the letter across. You want this information to get across, but that's boring. Uh, just conveying information. So you have to get this, uh, this interesting way to do that. And Tom King and Mitch Jarrods have collaborated to do something that's yeah. really well done in this. So I, I think that's just an instance where the uh, uh, it, it highlights the skill. Sure. There. Uh, another instance that, uh, that that highlights some of the same skill is uh, page two hundred three, um, where it's another one of those four wide panels. Uh, the middle two panels uh, are <laughs> awesome um, in a way. <laughs> uh, if you look at could, could, the. They're talking to Jim yeah. from Ops, uh, this character that uh, that you learn more about in the the last part uh, of the book. Um, but uh, he's talking to them. He's this enthusiastic sort of uh, 
military guy and he's like you're doing a great job and you're gonna get this you know he's um that sort of character and then in response to his communication there's this panel of silence where they're all just kind of looking at him and what's conveyed in there with that silence is just underscoring kind of how ridiculous he is um and uh, almost fatalistic sort of like this is the lot that we're stuck in here, I guess. Like the the their faith in the cause, with air quotes, is is shaken a little bit here. Um, and they sit there, uh, just all looking. And then the very next panel, uh, Sophia says, "God willing," her head tilts down, and she's looking up uh, through her eyebrows, sort of um, highlighting some of the same attitude. Christopher hasn't moved. Um, he's sitting exactly the same same way, and Nasir has just taken the and, cigarette and, out of his uh, mouth. breathes uh, out down, a which... uh, uh, breath of smoke, which is the same gesture he does in uh, 36, mm-hmm. 37, and 38. Yep. Yes, he, he does. So that's it's just a yeah. Nasir movement. Um, that, that he consistently does. But that, that sort of thing that Mitch Jarrett's captures uh, is it, 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 the, these panels are identical, but for small, yeah. subtle changes. And he can do that. Which really, is really one well. of those things that's like, it could be a writer thing. It could be an artist thing. But like at its best, it's a writer-artist collaboration thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yep. Definitely, uh, I have definitely. a couple things I want to point out. Um, just yep. uh, if I'm not treading on your toes too much. Um, we talked last time about this uh, uh, graphic novel's roots in both film noir and in both some of uh, the like World War II history, but also Vietnam, you touched on briefly. Um, part two of this novel is called The Things They Left Behind, uh, which is a direct yes. reference to um, Tim O'Brien's memoir, mm-hmm. borderline memoir novel, <laughs> um, uh, The Things mm-hmm. They Carried. Um, right. Which I don't want to do too much more with because I like I feel like I'd have to know more about the things I carried or have read this one three or four more times. Um, <laughs> but like again, just to just in case anyone was doubting that heritage, there's that. Um, and then part three is called "Here's Looking at You," which is a direct reference to the film mm-hmm. Casablanca, um, which. Mm-hmm. Uh, before, or, uh, Maltese Falcon became, came before Casablanca, but Maltese Falcon as mm. proto-noir, Casablanca as, like, potentially also proto-noir, and then, um, The Big Sleep as, like, noir-noir, uh, all kind of, uh, Star Humphrey Bogart have a similar aesthetic to them um so there's that direct reference there uh again like Mm -hmm. 
I could talk. I could say this much about it, or I could talk about it for another hour. Yeah. So, I won't do that second thing. Well, if if I can jump off from that, like yeah, something it's pointing out is that something that you're you're highlighting there is just how smart Tom King is. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, and even in the the little little details, he's got this overarching story that we've touched on. But we we just in noir in general, like the the story and the plot is trying to convey it is complicated, yeah, <laughs> and hard to hard to accurately describe in a limited capacity. But so we've we've described this big picture thing, but in the small details, also he's very smart. And so I'm going to use this as a, a launch pad to get into names with Michael. Okay. Yes. A little bit. You needed to do that um, at some point. Yes. Uh, you mentioned Sophia, Sophia's name, um, which uh, she reveals uh, towards the beginning of part four. Um, the Americans called her Sophia, S-O-F-I-A, yes. uh, after she was uh, kept in uh, America. Um, but her given name that her mother gave her is Safia. S A F F I Y A in English spelling, um, and she gives the history of that name in uh, three unique pages in the book, um, which again attests to uh, Mitch Jared's talents that he can change styles here um, from this realism to a sort of dreamish look. Um, to describe this this fairy tale legend thing um, about Princess Safiya, who uh, became the the bride of Muhammad um, after Muhammad uh, killed her father and her husband, um, conquering her her city. Uh, she was a Jew, and, and all of this, um, all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember if it actually tells what Safia means and they didn't look into what Safia means but Sophia um, is a as a Greek name means wisdom um, and Sophia also is a name uh, that is uh, a reference in um, Greek Jewish and Christian thought to the Messiah, mm. um, <clears throat> that the Messiah is the wisdom, is Sophia. It's the it's the feminine aspect of um, of that in in some some cases. So there there's this and and there's a tension ah, tension. I don't know if that's the right the right term. Uh, in maybe maybe it is in insofar as there's the same tension between the sides, quote unquote, in the in the novel in the graphic novel that uh, are are revealed to be not simply black and white. Um, but there's the same sort of quote-unquote tension uh, between um, the Christian and the Muslim sides. Um, Bob's story really brings that out, how um, they they did this raid and wound up killing a bunch of Christians um, with their, their Christmas lights. Um, Page two forty six has the has the panel of the soldiers standing over the the dead bodies with the uh, crosses and the lights. Um, so that that 
thematic aspect is there. Um, Christians and Muslims are mentioned in a number of different places as well. Um, Nasir makes mention of, of Christians. And that then points back to the, the main character of Christopher, which has Christ in the name. Literally, Christopher means Christ bearer, one who right. carries Christ. Um, so there's that, that aspect as well. And then if you look at Nasir, also Nasir means helper in Arabic, um, which is uh, another um, way that uh, God is referred to in uh, the Psalms, for instance. I, I, uh, it's uh, Psalm 121. Um, I, I lift my eyes up to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Uh, so God is called the helper also. Uh, and it also talks about Nasir's character in a little way that he is, he becomes anyway, the helper to Christopher and also Sophia uh, throughout. And then his wife is Fatima, um, which Fatima, I, I, I was, I'm not sure what the exact translation would be, but it, mean, it has something to do with chaste and motherliness. Um, and, that's central to her character as well, um, that uh, she's misunderstood by Bob and, and others to, to, and, and is, is judged merely by the outward appearance and is killed for it, um, whereas her character is rooted in her motherliness, uh, and uh, she's really pure in, in a lot of ways. There, there's a whole scene... Um, where she and Christopher both wake up in the middle of the night and then go drinking by the, the poolside or the empty, empty poolside in this, this manner, um, that's been, that's been bombed and such. And it could easily be the sort of thing that's set up for them to have an affair, right? but it's not going to happen because she's chaste and she's more of a motherly character to him. And it even shows it that way on page 120, um, he lays his head in her lap and she's just kind of caring for him there at the top three panels uh, of page 120. Um, so that, that aspect is there too. But also like with that, that motherly nature, um, if you relate that to the almost Christian aspect of Christopher, Sophia and helper Nasir, um, like you would think maybe the mother Mary, mother of Christ sort of thing. Um, like she becomes uh, the uh, almost a, an an equal partner in in some of this. Like she dies for the cause mm. in some ways. Also, she's she's related to that. That you know, the sword pierces her heart. Also, um, so there there's that whole aspect. But with with Sophia, going back to Sophia and her name change from Sophia. That marks some of her tension as character and some of the loyalties uh, that are part of her tension. Because that's Safia's whole thing the, in the legend, um, that she she's a, a, a Jewish princess um, who has a dream about the moon coming closer. And her husband interprets that as uh, Muhammad is coming to invade. And so he gets angry with her for it. And then Muhammad does come and invade. Uh, and then she's given a choice uh, to to die or to marry him, and she chooses to to marry him. And so, like that sort of thing happens to Safia, but then Safia Sophia uh, has this tension, as you pointed out: is she American? Is she 
Raki, what is she? Um, where are her loyalties? And that's a question throughout. Um, but that's, I don't know, uh, deeper as well. Yeah, that's that's what I got. Besides Bob being just like the most non-name of a of a of a name for for a character to introduce himself when he says just call me bob you know like that's that's a name you would give if it's like i'm not gonna give you my name just call me bob and i i guarantee that uh tom king researched name meanings and stuff when he was writing this just given the fact that he he understood the the tension of Sophia, Sophia, like pay, calling attention to that name. Um, that's important, and that that relates also to some of uh, Sophia's struggle as well through through the thing uh, through through the story um, that uh, she's she's undergoing a miscarriage, and um, it, it's not clearly stated. It seems to be heavily implied. I think that it would be Christopher's child. Um, but, uh, that also is, is pointing out some of this tension of Safia identifying as, uh, a wife in, in two different, uh, marriages. Um, and Sophia is, has that same sort of, of tension and, um, what does the bloodshed point to, right? Like where, where should her loyalties be is a question that I think she's struggling with. So I I don't know if you have any any further thoughts on the names and and things than than that. I I I might have set it up as having more thoughts than I actually did, but I think there's significance to the names that Tom King selected. I mean, there's it, it's almost underlined in the fact that like the character herself yeah. points out the difference between Sophia and Sophia, or however you want to pronounce yeah. that. Um, so there is that. I don't have any more than like the things that you pointed out there. All right, that's fair. Um, well, yeah. So that that's it's bringing us pretty close to the end of our time here. So if you have any other hobby horses you want to hop on and ride at a brisk gallop to the finish line here let me know now um the only one i am going to like hand to you michael yeah is the fact that i did lose <gasps> earlier in this series of episodes oh no oh um no. i'm looking it up quick as far as like uh yeah okay um, it's not out yet in terms of when our episodes are out versus when we are recording this one. Uh, it's going to be the next uh, House on Vesper Sands episode. I do lose because I say the phrase first paragraph. <gasps> and you don't call me out on it, which does mean I could, you know... Uh, have let this go, but I have chosen um, to hand you uh, this this gift, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. 
I yeah again I did lose you'll hear it if you do listen to the second uh, House on Vesper Sands episode I just didn't want you to find out about it in seven months whenever you get around to listening to that episode and then be mad at me forever mm-hmm I appreciate so it. I am subject that is to your punishment okay um well, with uh, with that in view, um, I have input into a random number generator. Yikes! Uh, a number between nine and two hundred ninety-four, because those are the pages in this graphic novel. Okay. And it has given me the number 255, and I, I haven't f taken a look at that yet. So I want you to go to page 255, Ethan, and I want you to okay. describe for us what's going on on page 255. But I want you to describe it. Jakes. <laughs> what? I want you to describe it. As though you are commenting on a a game of uh, on a, a a golf game match, whatever you call golf things, you're a commentator for golf, and I want you to describe it. All right. Well, as Michael has set up very masterfully in using all the golf terms, <laughs> uh. On page 255, we are in one of the sort of a grayscale flashbacks. Um, our CIA op is sort of in the act of betraying uh, his source. Uh, he's leaving him off in uh, an unfriendly neighborhood of Baghdad. And he does uh, seem to be both setting him up and anticipating his death uh so that's pretty grim um i hope michael's pleased with uh sort of where he's taken this uh uh taking this scenario taking this setup um a man does seem to be being paid off uh in sort of the sense that people are going to see him being paid off and then kill him Yes, that's right. Slow, gentle clap. Clap, 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 clap. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Yikes. Oh, good. All right. Well, let's uh, move on from our, our punishments now into into our ratings, Ethan. Uh, we've been drinking the Glenlivet Nadra for uh, going on probably about a month something like that month two and months a half, two months um so what uh what do you rate the glenlivet nadara uh from one to five stars all right um i want to preface this several ways mm. uh the first preface is this is the most expensive scotch i've ever bought <laughs> it is quite an expensive scotch as these things go Certainly not the most expensive one, but, like, up there. Okay. Uh, it was, like, I don't know, it was, like, $100 <gasps> and change in my That's market. 
That's more than mine was. What was yours? Just mine, out of curiosity. Mine was in the lower 90s. Okay. Well, so like you know. it's not extreme, I guess, but Yeah. Uh Now, that said, um I have not always been the biggest fan of Glenlivet scotches. Mm. Uh Now, I fully admit and this is like the third of several prefaces. <laughs> this is like an eccentric uh scotch preference on my part. Because, like, a lot of people love Highland Scotches, which is, mm-hmm. like, the Glenlivet is, like, a prime example of it. Mm-hmm. In the sense that Highland Scotches are, like, uh, very balanced. They have peat. They have other stuff. But, like, they're very, like, well-balanced. If you like bourbon, like a good bourbon, you'll probably like a good Highland Scotch. That kind of thing. I don't like a good bourbon, and I don't care about a good Highland Scotch. <laughs> I want things to be extreme i like my smoky scotches um i like my islas i like my uh uh oh i forget the other one um but yeah i uh, so you're more of a bmx okay. scotch guy right sure um i'm gonna let you have that and not Thanks. question it um i uh I've had Glenlivet 12, so this is further context. I've had Glenlivet 12. On our rating, which, like, neither of us have brought the scotch, I'd give Glenlivet 12, like, a 2 hmm. out of 5. Uh, I've had Glenlivet 15, the French oak cask finishing, where, where it's finished in, like, French wine barrels, basically. I'd give that a 2.5 or a 3. Mm-hmm. Um... The Glenlivet Nadara, I'd give a four. And I've done all that table setting to say that, like, out of the Glenlivet scotches that I've sampled, this is easily the highest one, easily the best one. There's definitely a lot of stuff going on with it. It, it like, phases between sets of flavors. Not just flavors, but, like, sets of flavors. Um, And, like, it's interesting, and there's... A little bit of there's a little bit of peat in the way that any scotch will have a little bit of peat. Mm. Uh, yeah, there's like a lot of interesting stuff going on. So like, but solid four out of five. I think I gave the Lagavulin eleven. Um, the the um, oh, I forget his name. Uh, anyway, I gave the Lagavulin eleven. I think a five Ron and like. Uh, Nick Offerman. The Nick Offerman yep. uh, edition, thank you. Um, I think I gave that a five, and in some ways, like, that's a less textural scotch than this one is, but, like, mm. excuse me, I liked that one better. Sure. Just in it giving me more of what I want from a scotch. Sure. Um, so it's a very arbitrary, maybe somewhat eccentric rating but definitely four out of five for me very good well i like i like what this uh scotch is trying to do uh it's uh the the nadra means natural which has something to do with the casking at uh or, or bottling at cask strength and and so forth um and so it is more 
raw. It is more intense. It has a higher alcohol content, for instance. Um, and so a as a result, uh, it's um, harsher and um, less apologetic, I'll say, uh, about <laughs> what it's doing. Uh, and so I, I wind up really, really liking it. The, the difficulty is that I can't um, drink a ton of it to, to get a real flavor out of it unless I want to spit it out and I, I just fundamentally don't want to do that um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I've got to take it slower with it and so I've, I've tried to uh, gradually come to an opinion about this scotch and as I have done so uh, over the past two months um, I'm going to settle on a 4.5 because there is underneath the harshness and the raw exterior just a lot of complexity and I think it's remarkable that it can do that and have so much um, complex flavor and and nose uh, and and finishing and like it burns more than a lot of other scotches <laughs> in in the 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 alcoholic way um, because of of its high alcohol content um, but it it's it's got it's got this fruitiness it's got this um, uh, almost a, an autumnal leafiness. It, it's it, it's not. I don't want to say bitter. It's not bitter, um, but it, it's it's got that harshness to it that uh, that permeates the whole thing. But it's it's got sweetness and uh, it's got subtle flavors all over the place that are are really really remarkable. And so I like this one a lot. Um, it's not yeah. an everyday scotch it's something that uh that i'll pull out on on more special occasions um so yeah i'm gonna give it a, a 4.5 stars i will say the one flavor note i forgot to mention was there's mm. like a dark chocolate Ooh. flavor note to it especially on the back end but it's like mid palate slash back end mm -hmm. that i have to admire um mm -hmm. and uh, as far as like the harshness goes, I will say a lot of uh, me drinking the scotch, I did add one to a few drops of water to it. And it's sure. like a scotch that really opens up, yeah. even just with the minimal amount of water, um, mm -hmm. which I understand is like a cask strength scotch thing, like... Uh, adding adding even droplets of water often opens up flavors so like if you're gonna look into the scotch i would recommend doing that like just adding a little bit to like one to several drops of water i guess i would say mm -hmm. um because again especially at cask strength cask strength it can handle it right like right <laughs> you know you're not gonna dilute it too much really right um so yeah but uh yeah i understand your your rating and i respect it um well i appreciate yeah. that <laughs> uh what do you rate the book the sheriff of babylon buy borrow forget about it buy absolutely <laughs> buy uh get it um there aren't that many uh, here in 2022 there are not that many um, good pieces of literature, period, whether novel, graphic novel, otherwise, 
dealing with uh especially the invasion of iraq slash the war on terror in general there are like a handful and especially of films but like and you know there's phil clay's collection of sorts short stories redeployment there's some other ones but like there's not that much and there's definitely not that both insightful and entertaining mm. um as far as offerings about this exact uh very recent historical period i'm sure as we go forward there will be more there'll be more insightful ones potentially like but like right now uh from a few years ago to 10 years in the future i doubt there will be a more insightful and more mm. entertaining take on 2004 iraq uh mm -hmm. to be had yes yes uh i'm also gonna give this a buy just a very solid solid buy um i you know i enjoy comic books i, I have my my collection of of comic books um but a good good graphic novel when that comes along i really pay attention and this one um is is very very good and and talk the the period that it's talking about and yes it's all set in in baghdad um around that that war on terror era um that's a time period that i think is going to start to be examined more in a different way than it had it's yeah. it's less contemporary and it's more historical now i i think it's it's moving into uh, a history that we can examine with some still contemporary um effects uh that are are connected to it and some of it is still ongoing in a lot of ways too but uh, I think the examination of that early 21st century um, history, the way it's it's going to be examined is going to be interesting to see as that opens up. I mean, um, that's that's coming on 20 years ago uh, for us now, and that's that's going to it's just going to get farther and farther away. And as it does so, the, the examination of it is going to get more and more interesting, I think, um, which it, which is, yeah. again, another thing that makes me feel old. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I think, I think like you say, Tom King's uh, examination of it is entertaining. It's so funny, but also so insightful. And I, I, I'm going to be interested to see, I, I think as, as that, as that time period gets examined, um, more in history, in fiction, in in various other media uh i think people are going to be forced to respond in some ways to the sheriff of babylon i i don't think it can be ignored in that examination so that's something that uh, that i think we'll look forward to um as it goes so yes this is this is an important book i'll, I'll say that i think it's an important book so buy it <laughs> yes. uh Rate the pairing, Ethan. Perfect match, pretty good match, slight mismatch, total mismatch for the scotch and the book. I'm going to say perfect match in the sense that, like, this book is pretty harsh and the scotch <laughs> is, like, pretty harsh. But, like, in both cases, like, while I'd say pretty harsh, like, they're both harsh in, like, an entertaining way and a way I want to go back to. 
Like, even though the scotch is a Highland scotch and, like, it's not my normal bag, I would drink the scotch again. And also, like, I've read this book twice now. I would read it again easily. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like, in those senses, like, it seems pretty parallel. So, bes- besides your objections to Highland Scotches in general, <laughs> you, you said exactly what I was going to say. Like, all of the all of the points, the harshness, the entertainingness, the I want to come back to it, I want to keep looking at it, I want to go deeper. All of that is my also rating of Perfect Match for this sketch in this book. So, yeah, that's that. Excellent. Good. All right, Ethan, would you like to know what we're reading next? Yeah. Um, you should have a package from me. I don't know if you've opened it yet. Oh, I definitely have. Like, you sent it so long ago <laughs> that I definitely could not resist the impulse to open it and see. <laughs> Good. And I was going to pretend that I had and, like, pretend to be surprised, but here we are. Here we are. Yeah, so the book we're reading next is The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Yes. Um, and this this one came about just because I was, like, perusing books that were more or less recent uh, publications and, like, going on Amazon, going through the library, looking at things that might be fun and, and interesting to look at. And this one struck me as... Like, the sort of sci-fi that's maybe in the vein of Douglas Adams a little bit, and just, like, out there and wild that I... And and, and there's... um, So I I listened to uh, LeVar Burton Reed's podcast, where he reads short stories and stuff. I don't know if he's read anything by Matt Haig, but um, there's a story that he read, and I forget the author... That sounds similar in concept a little bit to this book also. Um, and so I was interested to to read it. So I, I bought us each a copy. And um, yeah, it, I, I don't know if yours has the little like sticker on it that it's from the Good Morning America book club also. That's not why I picked it. Sure. Um, <laughs> but okay, Good, Mar- Good Morning America liked it. Um, so there. Very good. That's what we're reading next. Excellent. Uh, do you want to know what we're reading after that? Yes, please. Uh, I'm, I'm currently opening Okay, the good. I'm glad you have the package. I bought it for you much more recently. Uh, <laughs> go ahead and pull it out. What do you see, Michael? Oh, I see The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Excellent. Um, do you have... Okay, I... The internet is uh, vast in its vagaries. Uh, do you have the edition with an introduction by Guillermo del, del Toro? Oh boy, uh, I have not. Look, let me see. No, I have an introduction by Laura Miller. Okay. Uh, my edition has that and also Guillermo del Toro, del Toro so brag. Um <laughs> The only thing I've read up to this point by Shirley Jackson is the short story The Lottery, which mm-hmm. a lot of people read either in high school or, like, freshman year of college or both. And yep. 
I've just always wanted to read more of her books and uh, had this one in my stack and decided to get it for you in your stack. Uh, right. And, like, when we're recording this, it's, like, spooky season. It won't be spooky season by the time we get to <laughs> this book. So, like, whatever. But, like... Whatever. Uh, yeah, I just thought, like... Uh, let's do some more Shirley Jackson. More than zero, that is, I guess. Um, and yeah, here we are. Uh, I don't have really any better justification for it than that, but yeah. All right. I love it. Um, so read along with us, gentle listener, and tell us what you think ahead of time. Uh, but look forward to our discussions on uh, on those uh, those books. Um, I'm going to leave out all of the other stuff that we, we listed at the end of the last episode and just say, until next time, just remember, in, it's our party, and we'll cry if the stuff that we're given to drink or consume in other ways is too harsh. <laughs> Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From our fancy to yours.